Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, the Holy Scriptures say, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. You pray with me and for me as we begin this morning. Father, I just ask that, again, you would be our teacher through your spirit, that you would help us to understand these truths, that we would apply them rightly to our lives, that we wouldn't apply them towards others, but towards ourselves. So we ask, Father, that through the preaching of your word, the foolishness of preaching, you might edify your saints. Speak through me, help me not to add my own thoughts or opinions. That's not why we're here this morning. We are after your thoughts and your opinions. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to confidence, successful people will tell you, if you want confidence, you've got to build confidence. How? Psychologists have come up with several ways to build confidence, and here's a few of them. One, get things done. Start accomplishing things. Get through your to-do list, and you will build confidence. Even if it's small goals, you will start to feel confident about yourself the more you check off things that you've completed. Another one was be true to yourself. If you're trying to be like another person, you are not only attempting something that's impossible, but the true you will resist it. It will leave you lacking then in confidence. A third one is positive thinking. If we think positively about ourselves, we'll build confidence in ourselves. So think positive thoughts. For instance, one suggestion offered this. It said to write down at least three good things about yourself every day, and you'll build confidence. The only problem there is I don't know if there are three good things. Fourth, find positive people to be around. Instead of being around people who point out your flaws or your negatives, just simply be around people who are going to build you up and praise you for simply being you. And that will surely build confidence. Basically, find some cheerleaders in your life who will cheer you on and your confidence will grow. And then finally, another one I found was acquire new skills. If you want to improve your confidence, simply get better at more things. And then you will feel valuable as you look at the things that you are able to accomplish. And then your confidence will grow. Now, this is just a few of the several ideas out there, and there's many of them in how to build confidence. And our world is full of ideas in how to build confidence. However, the world's way of building confidence is in direct opposition to how the Bible says to build confidence. For instead of building building our confidence on what we've accomplished, the Bible tells us to build confidence upon what Christ has accomplished. Those are two very different things. One is looking inward, the other is looking outward. And so in our passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 10, we're just going to look at those verses we read before, 19 through 25, and we're going to find the three ways that Christians build confidence. And here they are. Christians have confidence by one, drawing, two, holding, and three, considering. Let's look at that first one. Christians have confidence how? By drawing where? Not on paper, near to God. Drawing near to God. Look at verse 19 with me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Those verses are basically what we just sang a moment ago in the song before the throne of God above. We have a great high priest. Who is that high priest? It's Christ. And so when it comes to confidence, there is one place in which we all desperately need to have confidence, 
and that's before the throne of God. However, there's only one thing that is capable of making so sin-fallen sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. There's only one thing that enables them to have confidence before the throne of God, and that's this. It's that God has drawn near to us. How did God draw near to us? We're about to celebrate that with Advent season, which is upon us. Well, Isaiah 9-6 tells us, For unto us a, son, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, here's the thing, though. Yes, God drew near to us in his son, Jesus Christ, but that alone wouldn't have been enough to give us confidence. No, it wouldn't have been. For as verse 20 points out, Jesus, the Son of God, was given in order to open a new and living way for us through the curtain. How? Through his flesh. Well, what's that talking about? What is, this, what is all this language in here about high priests and flesh, uh, temple, all this stuff? What is it talking about here? What's the curtain? To understand what these are referring to, we have to understand a little bit about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, okay? which is all a part of the Old Covenant, which we are no longer under. See, for the Jewish people, the temple in Jerusalem, it was the center of religious life. The temple was where they practiced animal sacrifices and conducted worship to Yahweh God. And in the temple, there were two places. There was the Holy of Holies, which was where God's earthly presence dwelt among his people, and the rest of the temple where sin-fallen man dwelt. And these two sections were separated intentionally by a 60-foot-high, four-inch-thick curtain. The imagery here very clearly showed that humanity was separated from God by sin. They could not go into God's presence upon pain of death. No one was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, the inner circle, except once a year, the great high priest on Yom Kippur, which was the Day of Atonement, he could enter in to give an offering for the sins of the people. And by doing so, this high priest would then temporarily atone for his own sins and those of the Israelite people. However, before the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he had to go through a special cleansing process. He had to wash himself. He had to put on special clothing. He had to bring burning incense to let the smoke cover his eyes so he would not have a direct view of God's holiness. He had to bring, a, bring sacrificial blood with him to make atonement, though temporary, for the sins of the people. And this had to happen every year. Year after year after year, this went on. However, unlike human high priests who had to sacrifice year after year, with Jesus' sacrifice, we know that was one and done. That's it. That's, that's all it needed. That's how valuable the blood of Christ was. It was his blood that sprinkled upon our hearts, cleansed us, and washed us clean from our sins once and for all. And that's what verse 22 is talking about. Christ's sacrifice once and for all opened then for us a new and living way through the curtain into God's presence, and that's what verse 20 is talking about. Why is it a new way? Why is it a living way? It's new because Jesus, as our great high priest, has made it so we can confidently enter God's presence. Before, it wasn't such a confident thing. If the priest got it wrong, if he didn't cleanse properly as he ought to, he was dead. It's a living way because Jesus, as our perfect and final sacrifice, did he stay dead? No, he didn't. He rose victoriously from the dead, and he lives as our great high priest and the final sacrifice who forever paid the penalty of humanity's sins. Because Jesus is our great high priest who also functions as our perfect and final sacrifice, that is why we can approach the throne of God above. In John 14, 6, here's what Jesus says. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What does the writer of Hebrews mean when he says that Jesus opened a way through the curtain? What's all this thing about the curtain? Well, in Matthew 27, Jesus, when he's about to die, he cries out with a loud voice saying what? It is finished. And then what happened? The curtain in the temple, that 60 foot high, 30 feet wide, four inch thick curtain, tore in two from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, 
It tore in two from top to bottom, which perfectly symbolized that God had done what was necessary to bring sin-fallen humanity into his presence. The reason the barrier curtain between God and man then was torn into two is because Christ's flesh was torn into two for us, and that happened upon the cross. Because of Christ's work upon the cross, God, the sovereign Lord of the universe, he can be now our heavenly father, not just our judge, not just our creator, but our heavenly father who we can draw near to with full confidence and a confidence that's not found in my works because that's not, not much to be confident about, is it? Because of Christ's work upon the cross, God, the sovereign Lord of the universe, is now our Heavenly Father. And because he's our Heavenly Father, we can draw near to him without shrieking back. Shrinking back. We can draw near to him with full confidence. That's our first point. Christians have confidence, one, by drawing near to God, but secondly, by holding fast to our hope. Look at verse 23 with me, if you have your Bibles. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, notice the word hope there, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. When it comes to Christian confidence, sometimes our confidence wavers, doesn't it? It absolutely does. Maybe we've had a bad day. Maybe we've had a bad week or a bad month or a bad bunch of months. Um, However, this verse tells us to hold fast to the confession of our hope regardless, without wavering. How do we do that? How do we hold fast to our hope? Well, by recognizing what we are holding fast to. Why doesn't verse 23 say, hold fast to the confession of your faith? You ever thought about that? Why doesn't it say that? That's what I would have expected it to say. It doesn't say that, though. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope, not our faith, our hope. And I think it says that because it's a massive difference between the two. Do you see the difference? The one easily places confidence on myself, while the other forces me to place my confidence upon where? God. One focuses on the strength of my confession, in the faith that I'm clinging to, while the other focuses upon the strength of God's confession. See the difference there? Which is why the verse goes on to say, what? For he who promised is faithful. The focus is all on God and what he's done, not upon what I've done. And until you see this truth, church, until it really sinks down deep into your heart, you're never going to have confidence before the throne of God above. You'll never have it. You'll always be looking inwardly. How strong was the profession of my faith? Was it, was it at least a nine out of a 10? I don't know if I really meant it enough. That's how you're going to think. But if you hold fast to the confession of your hope, then the focus is on God and what he has promised for you. Until this sinks down deep into your heart, the reality is you're going to be a pretty pathetic Christian. You're going to be a weak Christian. You're going to be easy prey for Satan. Charles Spurgeon once wrote about this, and I want to read the full quote for us because it's a really good quote. Here's what he says. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of his children. You have a wavering hold of Jesus. All these are thoughts about self, and we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all and in all. Remember, therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument, it is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand, 
with which thou art grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of thy faith. We shall never find happiness by looking, to, looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would look once, look at once, overcome Satan, and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Keep thine eye simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon your mind. When you wake in the morning, look to him. When you lie down at night, look to him. Oh, let not thy hopes of fears come between thee and Jesus. Follow hard after him, and he will never fail thee. You see what Spurgeon's saying here? It's a long quote, but did you follow along with it? He's saying that our confidence before God is not based upon my worth, but based upon Christ's worth. My confidence before God isn't based upon the strength of my faith, but the strength of the object of my faith. And the object of our faith is Christ and the promises of God that come with him. What does verse 23 say? For he who promises is faithful. Has anyone here ever struggled to feel worthy enough to draw near to God? Two hands probably for both, everybody. All the time. We struggle with this, don't we? Maybe our past sins haunt us or our current ones. It's true then to say that when it comes to drawing near to God, you are absolutely unworthy to do so. We have to recognize that. You are absolutely unworthy of drawing near to God. If your basis of drawing near to God is based upon your worth and not Christ's worth. If your confidence is based upon your worth instead of Christ's worth, then of course you absolutely should feel unworthy to draw near to God. However, if you are ridiculously naive about how bad your sin is, maybe you'll think you can draw near to God without Christ and you'll be okay. But listen to the author of Hebrews and what the Bible screams out over and over and over, which is you're not. Your sin makes you completely unable to draw near to God. And so if you're here this morning, you're feeling unworthy. Instead of wallowing in your unworthiness, recognize that Christ was born to die in order to make you worthy in order to make so that you could draw near to God, which means that it's the promises of God upon which your confidence must rest, not upon your own spiritual achievements. So we must never forget that it's not the strength of our faith that saves us, but it's the strength of the object of our faith that saves us, and the object of our faith is Christ. The old hymn, The Solid Rock, I like how it puts it. It says this, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So I ask you, is your confidence to draw near God, near to God, based upon the power of your faith in Jesus' blood, or is it based upon the hope of Jesus' blood? Is it based upon yourself or upon Christ? They're two very different things. One brings salvation, one brings damnation. That's how big of a difference we're talking here. One focuses upon the power of my faith, while the other focuses upon the power of Christ. Very different. And if your confidence is based upon the strength of your faith, instead of the strength of the object of your faith, then you won't easily draw near to God. You will shriek back, shrink back constantly from him. You will feel inferior to be in his presence. You won't run into the throne room of God, going to your heavenly father, asking for his aid and divine assistance. If we aren't drawing near to God out of confidence in Jesus Christ, then we aren't going to be any benefit at all to any of our brothers and sisters in Christ, which leads us to our final point this morning. Christians have confidence, one, by drawing near to God, two, by holding fast to our hope, and three, and finally, considering one another. Verse 24 and 25, let's read these again. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a lot going on in this 
these last two verses here. So let's unpack these. Primarily, let me ask you a question. How do we become more like Jesus? That's our goal as Christians, right? We are disciples of Christ, and disciples learn after their master and want to become like their master. So how do we become more like Jesus? Does that happen in our prayer closet primarily? No. Does that happen in our daily Bible reading? No. What is the primary mechanism that shapes Christians into becoming more like Christ? Look around the room. As C.S. Lewis once rightly put it, he said, God works on us in all sorts of ways, but above all, he works on us through each other. If you accidentally cut off your finger, how long is that finger going to last before it starts withering and decaying? Not very long. It needs to be attached to the body, which is its source of nourishment. And do you know what the Bible compares Christians to? We read one of the verses earlier that hints at this. Compares Christians to parts of a body, right? The church is the body of Christ. And so just as the foot needs the toes, the hands need the fingers, and the arms need the shoulders, so too does a Christian need Christ's body, which is the church. And notice I said church, not a random group of believers getting together for Bible study. That's not a church. I don't have time to unpack that fully, but it's not. It's good. You should absolutely be part of one of those if you can, but it's not the same thing. Don't get me wrong, Bible studies are good, but they aren't the church. And so to say, all I need is my small group study, all I need is my close Christian friends, that's a lot like the fingers and the hands getting together and saying, we don't need the arms, we don't need the shoulder. We don't need the torso. We're good here just fine by ourselves. Well, that might be great, and you might decay a little slower at that rate because you're not isolated off by yourself, but you will still decay. No question about it. The Bible is crystal clear here on this topic. We absolutely need one another if we are going to be spiritually healthy. What did Jesus say? Upon the church, he, upon the rock of Peter, he would build what? His small group or his church? His church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Ephesians 4, it tells how he gave us the pastor teachers for what? Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. There's a lot we could say on this. But we don't have time for it. We absolutely need one another if we're going to be spiritually healthy. And there's numerous reasons for this. However, verses 24 and 25 tells us two of the big reasons, which are one, what? Stirring up one another towards love and good works, and two, encouraging one another. That word for stir, it means to provoke. It means to poke. It means to prod or even to irritate. You can't get any of this stuff with online church. You can't. It's not possible. This idea of stirring up one another has the connotation of sharp disagreement and even confrontation. And the way this looks is you poke me in the areas I need to be poked in, and I poke you in the areas you need to be poked in. Why? So that we are motivated and motivating each other to live godly lives. That sounds uncomfortable. Won't somebody get offended by that? What if they get upset and leave over it? Well, on one hand, we don't want to see anyone leave our church. The reality is we're not building a crowd here at Eagles Nest. That's not our goal. I don't want to see a crowd of a 1,000 people. I want to see a congregation of disciples, whatever that size is, that is stirring, poking, prodding one another to become more like Jesus. We are here to make disciples. That is a part of the Great Commission, to go into all the world and preach the gospel and to make disciples. And a part of disciple-making is this stirring one another, is this poking and this prodding each other towards love and good works. Now, at the same time, this doesn't mean we want everyone here to just run around bluntly spouting their mouth off every time they see a Christian who's got some area in their life that isn't measuring up to holiness. 
We don't want that. Nor does the author of Hebrews, though. That's, he doesn't want us to do that either, which is why he says there's a criteria here to safely do this stirring, to safely do this poking. What's the criteria in the verse? It's to consider. The word consider, which means this. We don't just go running around with our spiritual cattle prod and sneak up and zap people every time we see a problem. If that's the way you approach this verse and think it's your God's God-given spiritual gift to go around and zap people, you're going to find out you're going to get slapped a lot. People aren't going to appreciate it. You're going to be in the outskirts of the church family, and no one will want to come near you. That's why the author of Hebrews says we need to consider how we can stir one another up, which means what? We need to stop and take time to prayerfully consider how we might stir them up to good works, which means we got to study each other. we got to know each other. We need to pray for each other. We need to spend time considering or pondering the situation. And before a word leaves our mouth, we need to go to God and ask him for wisdom. We need to pray James chapter 1, which is any, if, says what? If any of you lack wisdom, ask of God and he will give it to you. Who here lacks wisdom? Two hands, right? We definitely lack wisdom. And so in this stirring process, we got to go to the Lord and ask for his power, for his insight, and for his wisdom here. A verse that really stuck out to me this past six months in our men's Friday morning Bible study is Proverbs 15, 23, and it says, how delightful is a timely word. Ecclesiastes 3, 7 has a similar thought. It says there is a time to be silent and a time to speak, which tells us something very, very important when it comes to this stirring each other up. It's not always what you say. It's not just simply how you say it. There's a third element here to wisdom and timely speech when it comes to considering how to speak to another believer in a stirring, poking manner, and that's when you say it. You don't run up to somebody who just finished their wedding and they're walking down the aisle and say, hey, I got to talk to you about some sin in your life. That's a stupid time to do that, right? There's a time when to say something. And how do you know when the right time is and the wrong time is? Is there a scripture verse that tells us on what days of the week? What? No, you need wisdom. Another criteria for this stirring, and we find this in Ephesians chapter 4, it tells us to speak the truth how? In love. Not in irritation. Not in frustration. Not in, are you serious? Like, you're the worst Christian I've ever met. Right? You don't talk to each other like that. We talk to each other in a loving, gracious way. Now, does that simply mean we just have to put on a really nice, sweet, gentle, kind voice and you know, kind of baby talk each other? No. Love is a verb, which means we need to be loving towards the person that we're trying to stir up. So pragmatically, if your relationship with the person is skin deep, if it's only based upon discussing your favorite foods, the weather, the Vikings things like that, that's not going to cut it for this stirring process. Instead, you need a relationship where you've shown real acts of love towards that person. You need the type of relationship where you've prayed together, where you've shared your struggles, your fears, and your battles with that person. It needs to be a relationship that's based upon love and the mutual exchange of mercy and grace, which is at the core of the gospel. It needs to be a relationship then that is modeling the gospel. Do you have people like that for you in this church? People whom you are open with about your struggles, with your trials, with your temptations. People who love you enough to tell you about the blind spots that you have. And point out your spiritual weaknesses. Some of you say, well, I don't have any spiritual blind spots. Well, they're called blind spots for a reason. You don't know they're there. You have them. We all have them. Do you have people around you who regularly prod and stir you towards good works, and you thank them for it when they do? Because if you don't, you're in big trouble spiritually. You are easy 
pray for the devil. One pastor explains this with an illustration, and he uses uh, Homer's epic story, Odysseus. And in this story, there's a part in the tale where Odysseus is warned about this island with these sirens who have this siren song that drives the men mad. The voices are so beautiful that when they hear it, they become mad with desire, and they turn the ship, and they sail it into the rocks where they crash and they drown. And so knowing this, What Odysseus does is he puts wax in the sailors' ears and has them tie him to the mast and then instructs them that no matter what he says or does, they are to leave him there tied to the mast until they sail past the island into safety. In other words, Odysseus was asking his crew to give him what he needed, not what he wanted. Church, this is exactly what we need each other to do what we need everyone here to be doing for each other. This is what we need to be doing for one another. Because the reality is, if we are all going to survive this spiritual process we're in, if we're going to be successful in it, we need to recognize we're all going to have times when our sinful desires are going to flare up. And the only thing that's restraining me, the only thing that's restraining you, is one another. There are going to be times where my heart wants to wander from Christ. Times where I don't want holiness. Because sin is tempting, right? It absolutely is. There's going to be times where my heart wants to live in sin. There's going to be times where your heart wants to live in sin. And in those moments, we vitally need one another to tie us to the mast and not let us run into that sin. This is one of the reasons why here at Eagle's Nest, we are big about church membership. I don't want to beat this drum too long again, but that's our basis for stirring one another up. See, as a pastor, I'm not responsible for the Christians in Pine River who attend Riverview. I'm not. Christianist. I'm not responsible for the Christians down in Brainerd who attend the Bible preaching churches down there. Their pastors are. And likewise, as a church, we are primarily responsible for each other here. That's why we call it a covenant commitment. We're recognizing who I'm responsible for, who I am commanded to go stir up, and who I'm not responsible for stirring up. Because the reason this is a command is because God wants us to do it. It's not a, it's not a recommendation. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. You, as a Christian, are responsible for stirring up other believers into love and good works. You as a Christian are responsible within your local body to love and encourage each other. And so do you see why now you think of Achan's sin? What did Achan do? He, he stole the stuff. They were supposed to burn it all. He put it back in his tent, put it underneath the ground, covered it over. And what did they do to Achan? They stoned him. But what did they do to his family? Stoned his family too. You know why? Because in the Old Testament, there is associated guilt that goes along with that. Achan was the product of the people he was around. The same thing goes for us as a church. If we see a Christian who runs off into sin, says, I'm leaving my spouse, I don't want anything to do with him, I'm done with all this. We're guilty if also of that sin if we have not stopped to take the time to stir them up to love and good works. Do you see that? We have a shared guilt there. That's why the author of Hebrews commands us to stir each other up. It's important. It's vital. It keeps us from crashing spiritually into the rocks and drowning. You'll never reap the benefits given in this passage if you don't go from being in a church crowd into being in a church congregation. That's called relationship. It's called intimacy. It's called closeness. And so here at Eagles Nest, our focus as a church is on those who have taken these passages seriously, who understand that there are real dangers on the line here. And so we want to engage with one another in a close, intimate, lifelong discipleship type relationship. It's not because we're an elitist club, because we want to be faithful to what Jesus commands us to do. I don't want to see those in this church crash spiritually upon the rocks. I trust you don't either. 
The second piece of the puzzle here, when it comes to considering how to prod one another onto love and good works, is encouragement. Uh, and yes, sometimes we absolutely need to be confronted. We need someone come along, get in our face, and say, you are the man, as Samuel did for King David. We need that. That's not the only thing we need. Sometimes we need words of encouragement. I remember, I've shared this with several of you, but I remember when I was in my 20s, young and dumb. Now I'm just dumb. But in my 20s, I remember I, I, I learned, the two people in my life I've learned most about ministry from are my dad and Craig, who's preached here. And I remember I was down in the cities, and I think I shared with somebody with this recently. You're going to hear it twice. But I remember once, long story short, I think we just slept in that Sunday. Something happened. I don't know what was going on. I worked overnights, and we didn't get up and go. And I remember Craig, he didn't rebuke me when he found out about it. He didn't get in my face and be like, don't you know what Hebrews 10 says about forsaking the assembling of yourselves? He didn't do that. You know what he said? All he said was, just know when you're not here, you're missed. Dagger in the heart is what that was, in a good way, right? Like, that stuck out to me in a way I'll never forget. And that's how it should be with us as a church. We should long to see each other. We should miss one another's presence when we're not together. Why? Not because we're an elitist, prideful, self-righteous club. Because we genuinely love one another. The same way I miss my kids when I'm not with my kids or my spouse when I'm not with my spouse. We should have that for each other. And in order to have that, we've got to work towards it, don't we? It doesn't just come naturally. So encouragement needs to be a part of this. Yes, sometimes confrontation, but oh, so very often, we desperately need encouragement. Some people wrongfully think that their spiritual gift is the cattle prod. I can pretty much guarantee you, if you think it is, it's not. And so if that's you, I would encourage you to start working on becoming a Barnabas, becoming an encourager of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because by doing so, you know what that's going to develop in your own heart? Love for one another, which is what Ephesians 4 tells us to do. Speak the truth, but speak it in love. Because that's the thing about truth. If you simply speak truth to another person, but there's no love, you're not actually speaking truth because you're saying it in a way where they're not capable of hearing it. Yes, technically it's true. Two plus two is four, right? If you're saying things that are factually correct, yes, technically it's true, but it's not actually true because you're not saying it in a way that they can hear it. You see now why there's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. It's not possible to love God. Let me back up. It's not possible to love God while not loving his church. It's not possible. Why? Because the church is the body of Christ. It's the physical manifestation of Christ's presence here on earth until he one day, hopefully very, very, very soon, returns. 1 John 4, 9 through 12, this is where I ground this point at. He says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. How? That God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, what? We also ought to love one another. That's the basis by which you know you love God, because you love the body of Christ. You long to be with the body of Christ. When you're not capable of being with the body of Christ, you miss it. You're saddened by it. And why? So you can check a legalistic, I went to church this Sunday box? No, because you love Christ. You know one of the big reasons Christians often end up being persecuted? Because they refuse not to meet together. It's because they refuse to forsake the assembling of themselves together. It's actually a really remarkable thing. These people's livelihoods, and sometimes their lives are in jeopardy. They might be in prison for years or executed for simply meeting with the people of God. And if you think this is a rare thing, let me tell you, it's not a rare thing. This is a common thing in some parts of the world. There's more persecution and martyrdom happening today than at any point in human history, at any point in the church. The question is, why do they risk it? Why don't they just do online church? 
What's, are they nuts? Don't they realize how dangerous it is to meet together? The reason they meet together is because they realize how dangerous it is not to meet together. It's more dangerous not to meet than it is to meet, even when their life is on the lines. And so they meet for two reasons. One, they love Christ, and therefore they can't stand being away from Christ's body. And secondly, as we just said, they realize how much more dangerous it is not to meet. They realize that by being separated from the body of Christ, they're easy, they're easy pickings. They can be picked off so easily by the devil who roams around as a lion seeking whom he may devour. So maybe you're thinking this morning that you are spiritually strong enough that you don't really need other Christians. Maybe just a little bit, but you're fine. Maybe you think you're strong enough that you can forsake the assembling of the Christian church and you'll be all right. Well, not only are you lacking in spiritual self-awareness, but you're lacking in what 1 John spoke of, which is love for one another. Not my words. This is what the scripture says. These are Christ's words. Take it up with him if you don't like it. Uh, These are his words. Think about it, though. Can you think, well, yeah, we'll go here with it. Can you think of a time at church when someone said something to you that greatly helped shape who you are spiritually at a time of serious crisis? Maybe they said something that poked you, that stirred you up spiritually and got you thinking about your faith and your relationship with Christ in a way you've never thought about before. I'm not just talking about the sermons. I'm talking about that special conversation you had before church or maybe after church, which made a spiritual light bulb go off for you in a way it never had before. I'm talking about that Christian who raised their hand in Sunday school and had a comment, a special insight into the conversation that was happening that radically shaped you and had a profound impact upon your life. Anybody here ever had that before? I have. Several times. Now, think with me for a minute. Imagine if that Christian hadn't been there that day. They just slept in. They didn't feel like going. Would you have received that blessing? from the sovereign purposes of God, you would not have. This is why it is so important, why the author of Hebrews tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It is so vitally necessary for Christians to be strong in a world that wants to crush us, in a world that is ruled by the prince of darkness, who wants to see these little ones in our church not grow up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, Satan, I'm convinced Satan, if he can keep you out of church, the next thing he'll delight in is you being just a part of the crowd and never actually getting close and intimate with a church family and a church body because you're too busy running around doing this, that, and the other. Probably even things that are good things, but not things that trump the meeting of God's body here on earth, Christ's body here on earth. This passage commands us to stir up and encourage each other. And the reality is, you can't do that unless you're with each other. You can't do that if you are not meeting together with each other, which is why the text commands us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Now, one thing about this, the minimum element of obeying this, this is just like step one of obeying this, is being at church when you can Okay, that's, that's not, if that's all you do is you just show up when you can. That's not fulfilling the for, not forsaking this of yourselves together. Okay, that's not the whole part of it. There's more to this command than simply showing up and filling a pew. Does going to church every week mean we're not guilty of forsaking the assembly of ourselves together? No, it doesn't. Not on its own. That's just the first step, as we just said. And why is that just the first step? Because there's steps two and there's steps three, which are what? Stirring up our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Encouraging our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In a loving, Christ-like way. That's what is involved. 
if we are not going to be forsaking the assembling of ourselves together? Is it any wonder then why the American church is in such shambles? It is. If you don't know that, it's in complete shambles. Is it any wonder why Christians in today's culture look basically no different than the world? I could give you Pew Research and Barna poll after poll after poll that shows Christians watch the same stuff as the world, they talk the same way as the world, they live in the same sins as the world. Because we're in the world. We're living like the world. We're not coming together as the body of Christ and pursuing holiness together as we stir each other up to love and good works. When it comes to avoiding forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, you know there's another way that we can violate this while filling a pew. What if I show up to church on Sunday, I'm tired, and I'm distracted because I was up late reading, binge-watching Netflix or whatever, and I get nothing out of it, and I'm unable to stir up fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because I'm too tired, too tired to stir them or encourage them. Is that not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together? Absolutely is. What if we come to church and we daydream the entire time, mess around on our phone, check Facebook, all that stuff? Is that violating the forsaking of ourselves together? I'm afraid to say it is. Or what about this? What if we show up with a know-it-all arrogant attitude? We completely turn the preacher off because we disagreed with a minor point that he made that day. And again, don't, don't take, take this the wrong way. If I say something wrong, let's talk about it. We'll print a retraction the following week. I don't want to say things that are wrong. Sometimes with text, there's five different ways to interpret it, and good men differ. But what if I am splitting hairs on things in a way where it's done with pride, with a know-it-all attitude? Is that forsaking the assembly of ourselves together? I think so. There's a lot of ways that we can flesh this out. Maybe we can discuss this a little bit in our fellowship and focus class here when we, when we meet in a little bit here. But the point is, church, What we're talking about today isn't simply checking an attendance sheet. It's about one anothering. It's about being the body of Christ, protecting one another, caring for one another. And this one anothering is a vital part of not only being a healthy church, but being a healthy and faithful follower of Jesus Christ. We're going to be studying this one anothering. This, the one another, there's lots of them, lots of one another passages this coming January once we finish up Attributes of God here in a few weeks. And I'm excited for this because this whole building up one another concept in the Scripture is vital for a church to be not only effective but healthy. We all vitally need mutual edification. And what does the text say? How much edification do we need? All the more as you see the day approaching, which is basically saying what? You need this, but you're going to need it even more the closer we get to Christ's return. See that? How much were the Christians meeting in the early church? Anybody have an idea? Daily. Regularly. Oh, how far we've fallen. And I'm not saying that we have to do that, but the point is, why did they meet daily? Because they loved Christ and they loved Christ's body. And they hated to be separated from one another. And they also realized how much they needed that mutual edification. And yet I just saw a recent Barna study that talked about how, I won't go into all the details, but church attendance in the last two years has plummeted for the average evangelical church. What's the day that's being spoken of in our passage? It's the day of the Lord. It's the day of judgment where we are going to stand before God to give an account of what we've done in the flesh, the way we lived in this life. Romans 2.16 says this, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secret thoughts through Jesus Christ. One day, church, very soon, Christ is going to return. And when he does, Some are going to cower in fear and shame as they shrink back from him. But not everyone. Others will step forward boldly with confidence before the throne of God. And they won't do it because they are impressed 
and so confident in their own works of righteousness, they will do so because they are confidently resting in Christ's works of righteousness, and it impacted the way they lived in this life. So are you ready for that day? Are you resting confidently in the hope of God? Are you loving Christ's body as you try to stir the members of Christ's body up to love and good works? Is God using you to encourage other believers all the more, which means lots more, growing amounts more as you see the day of Christ approaching? Or are you forsaking Christ's church? Well, if so, recognize, if you would, this morning that you're not just forsaking Christ's church, but you're actually forsaking Christ himself, and that's in this text. The text words, that's Christ's words, not my words. So I would encourage you to one, find confidence in Christ. And then once you have, serve Christ by loving Christ's body. What did Peter, what did Jesus say to Peter? If you love me, what? Feed my sheep. Now that's a specific context there for Peter, but that applies to us as well. If you love me, love my sheep. This is what the author of Hebrews is pointing us to this morning. Father, I just thank you for this text. And so, Lord, I just ask that this text would not have been used today as a, as a stick to beat the sheep, but as an encouragement to what we can have as a church body if we are faithful to what you've commanded us to. Lord, I pray and ask that this would be true of eaglesness. That when Christ comes, we would not shrink back, but we would boldly step forward in confidence. Confidence that's not found from within, but that's found from without, that's found in Christ, in the shed blood of Jesus upon the cross. Father, I pray for the Christian here today who says, you know, I think I have not been loving Christ's body as I ought. I pray that today would be a revolution in their faith that they would recognize how tiny and short this life is. It's just a vapor. Yet what we do in this vapor of a life has impacts for eternity. Help us to be found faithful when you come. In a culture, in a Christian culture of Christians who are not faithful, who are living just like the world. So we ask that through the power of of your Holy Spirit, to the truth of your word, that we would live victoriously as Christians for your glory and for our great good. We pray these things in Jesus' name.